1: Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths. And the question today is, love a good who done it? who doesn't? And more so when it also involves gangsters, malls, and old Hollywood and American history, as it turns out. So that's why author Stuart Sabal has spent the past 30 years interviewing, researching, analyzing, and fact-checking his new book, Queen Bee, And the killing of Bugsy Siegel, which at 74 years is the the oldest cold murder case in America. I think the other one prior to that was 50 years, but I'll ask him about that. Now he has the opinion of noted former mob attorney and three-time mayor of Las Vegas, Oscar Goodman, who has read the manuscript and who stated, as far as I am personally concerned, Queen Bee in the killing of Bugsy Siegel has provided us with the motive, the killer, and a thorough analysis of why the shooter of Bugsy Siegel was never caught during the shooter's lifetime, nor discovered any time thereafter. There is no logical reason why a case of this magnitude and continued worldwide public interest should remain in limbo. However, as the law stands today, I do not see a procedure that would allow the legal system to close as it should, and at 74 years of age the oldest cold case in America. So today, Stuart is joining me for part two of a fascinating look at history from a man who knew the families from childhood. And you can listen to part two, one wherever you consume your business podcast. Just look for your partner in success radio. Type in Bugsy Siegel, and there you will be. So, Stuart, welcome back to your partner in success radio. It's good to have you here.
0: Well, a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Denise, for ha- asking me back.
1: Well, I couldn't leave it where we did <laughs> the last time. I was like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Hang on. There's more to this story. I know there is. So that's why I wanted you to come back and and share it. But and I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail about who you are and what you do because I think the story is too important. People can go back and and I recommend that they go back and listen to part one which tells people a little bit more about you but you say that your book is a saga of organized crime in America and the difference between this and all over all other books about Bugsy Siegel is that this is the first book on most who was the chief lieutenant for mob Bosmeyer Lansky. And then you go on to say that this is not a book about speculation or based on speculation. It's a book of facts direct from the mastermind of the killing. This is not hearsay, but came to the author from the person directly involved. I don't think many people can say that. So there were just too many suspects, too many secrets, and they were just too vast to count. And you've spent 30 years unraveling it. So... Where do you want to start? You've got a ton to say here.
0: Yeah, that's true. Uh, There's no place to start but, like, from the beginning. And it all began when I was going to grammar school, believe it or not. And uh, a childhood friend of mine, his name was Robbie Sedway, and I went to Hawthorne School in Beverly Hills in 1952. That's when we met. I came over uh, with my folks from Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, we landed in Los Angeles. My dad uh, had a business here. uh, He and his brother had started. And uh, so we went from the East Coast to the West Coast. And there, when I went to school, I met Robbie Sedway, like I met all the other kids. And we became very good friends. And just I knew everybody in his house. In those years, when you're a kid, you know families. It's not like when you get into high school and you go to college and beyond. But you know families from grammar school from the beginning. You know their mothers, their brothers, their sisters, their fathers, their their pet dog. You know everybody in their family. You, they know them in your family you eat over at each other's house, you sleep at each other's house, you've got uh a myriad of friends and uh and you're always doing things together. You're rarely at home. Uh T V was not a big factor in those days. Nobody was glued to the T V. Definitely not the internet. There was no such thing. That was science fiction. That was that was the Twilight Zone. That was something no one ever dreamed of. Uh so you spent the good part of your day outside. And uh, in those days, your parents didn't have to know where you were every second. As long as you were home by dinner time, you were out playing with your friends. And that's the way it was. So I knew everybody in the Sedway family except for father. His father, unfortunately, most Sedway, passed away of natural causes. When you're talking about, speaking of mobsters, you have to say that, uh, but he died of natural causes in January of 1952. And I met Robbie and moved to Beverly Hills in October of 1952. So I never met his dad, and he didn't speak much of his dad uh, because he was eight years old when his dad passed away. But he did carry an obituary that he had put in uh, permaseal and uh, it was the obituary from Las Vegas of his dad, and he carried it in his wallet. He always carried that with him. And he took it out and looked at it several times. He showed it to me. And I thought it was interesting, but I thought, I'm sorry his dad died, but he had uh, kind of a an uncle, a surrogate father, his mother's boyfriend, who was also his father's bodyguard. Um, and he was always around. He, he was living at the house. And in those days, male and females who were not married did not co- cohabitate. It was not done. It would have been the scandal. More than anything else, it would have been a scandal. So he was the bodyguard. But he was actually his mother's lover. And he helped raise Robbie. He helped raise his older brother, Dick. And, uh, so he was like a surrogate father, and he would drive us uh, if we wanted to go to the movies or we're going to a party or someplace, he would drive us. My dad would drive us. We are different parents to drive us. But his, his, uh, his dad's bodyguard's name was Moose, and Moose would drive us. And one thing we noticed right off is that Moose was always packing a gun, He always wore a windbreaker, and underneath it was a shoulder holster gun. And we're so used to seeing it that nobody made comment. It wasn't, oh, Moose is carrying a gun. He'd go to the Little League ball games. Sometimes he would umpire. He was always carrying a gun. So we just were used to it. It wasn't even worth mentioning because you always saw it. None of the other parents carried guns, but nobody uh, nobody said anything about it. Uh, and when when Robbie and I were, I guess we we're 12, 13 years old, he asked me, he said, hey, you want to go to Vegas for the weekend? Now, no one has ever asked me that before. And I've done uh, 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 coast-to-coast trips going back and forth to uh, Jacksonville, Florida, Uh, For my dad's other business, uh, we would go there uh, for a few months out of the year during the summertime. And in those days, you took a DC-3. It took 13 hours and five stops. You had to really be committed to want to go to the East Coast. So we would go there, and I had been on the planes before. Robbie had never flown to Vegas before without his parents. So it was the first time for me to fly without my parents. So we went and we went there for the weekend and it was, it was great. It was unusual. There were a, just a few hotels. We stayed at the Flamingo because his dad was the executive vice president at the time of the Flamingo. He had taken it over with Meyer Lansky, Ben Siegel and uh, Gus Greenbaum who was from Al Capone's mob who, who was involved in this and Gus Greenberg who was, was from uh, Phoenix, and he came over to Las Vegas. So uh, we went there for the weekend, and it, it was two days, but I'll never forget it. It was, um, it was like being in the Old West. It was hot, there wasn't much in the way of air conditioning any place except in the hotels, and um, it was an unusual place because you could gamble. But uh, from there, uh, I, after graduating from high school, uh, going into high school, I should say, uh, from Hawthorne, uh, our circle of friends expanded and we kind of lost touch with each other. He went to a different high school than I did. We both went, started off at Beverly High and then switched to other schools. And so we kind of lost track of each other. And uh, But we always kind of kept in touch, but every few years we give a call. And then one day he, uh, he called, he said, uh, let's have breakfast. I said, okay. I hadn't seen him in many years. So we had breakfast. And, he sa- and I said, I had a publishing house at the time, and I was publishing martial art books. I was doing a lot of martial arts writing for the magazines, for other publishing houses. I thought I would just start my own publishing company, which I did. And it was quite successful. Uh, ended up selling it to a large martial arts uh, publishing house after about ten, twelve years. Um, but I enjoyed it, and so I knew about writing. I knew about publishing. I had, I had a handle on, on the industry as it was at the time. There was no internet, and there was no computers. Everything was written on a Electric typewriter. That little ball would dance around, and I, I just. Type away, and uh, when I sent a story in, it was on a stamped envelope. Sent it in to New York, or I'd hand deliver it if it was in Los Angeles to the publishing house, uh, and, and that's the way it was. So he uh, he knew that I was writing, and he and I said to him in just conversation, "How would you, uh, how would your mom like to do a, a book for me? It's out of my genre, but I." I I I could handle it. I said, how would your mom like to do a book for me on old Las Vegas? I'm sure she's got some fascinating old photos, and we could do kind of a history and tell about old Las Vegas. He said, you want to hear a real, true old Las Vegas story? And um, I said, sure. He said, you want to know who killed Bugsy Siegel? Well, at the did time, Bugsy Siegel Bugsy not. Did Siegel you spit your
1: not, coffee? If I I would have spit coffee all over the place.
0: Well, Bugsy, uh, yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me?
1: <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, I can hear you. Oh,
0: <laughs> I am drinking coffee. How did you know?
1: <laughs> no, that, had somebody said something to me at at that moment. I would have just involuntarily made a mess. I mean, that's not what you expect oh. to come out of somebody's mouth ever. I wouldn't think. <laughs>
0: Especially not yours. (laughs) (laughs) Crazy. (laughs) Never admit it. Come on, Denise. Well, what? (laughs) I'm kidding. Um, So uh, he said, uh, you want to know, tell Bugsy Siegel. And I said, sure. And I had heard of Bugsy Siegel. He was not foremost on everyone's mind. And uh, my dad had heard of Bugsy Siegel. Parents had heard of Bugsy Siegel, but he had he had been killed in 1947. Here we are in the 50s. So uh, no, when I, when Robbie spoke to me, we were in uh, the 90s. So uh, he said uh, he said I'll tell you who killed Bugsy Siegel. I knew it was still a mystery, but I I was. Mildly interested, but it was no big deal. He could have told me a name. And I said, oh, okay, that's interesting. And he said, you know who killed him? I said, I know who killed him? How would I know who killed him? He said, you've known him for years. And he said, it was Moose. I said, Moose? That was the bodyguard. That was Robbie's surrogate father. That was the man who was running the household for the Sedways since the 50s. I said, Moose, I said, where did that come from? And he said, uh, He said, my mom would like to tell the story, but she is concerned that if it gets out, that she might be prosecuted for the killing because murder has no statute of limitation. And so uh, I said, get out, what, what's to get out? What, what, I don't understand what you're saying. He said, my mom wants to tell the story on the the real story on who killed Bugsy Siegel. There's plenty of speculation, but they'd never caught the killer. And he said, if you're interested, he said, uh, she she would talk to you. And she would tell you straight, but you have to promise not to divulge anything to anybody until after she dies. And I said let me speak to your mom. So I spoke to her only one time. And I said, Mrs. Sedway, I said, uh, you have a story to tell. I would love to talk to you about that. And, but I don't know too much about organized crime. And I don't know too much about Bugsy Siegel, because he was not Warren Baby. He was not someone right. who won Academy Awards. I said, he was a gangster. I don't know anything. I've heard of Mickey Cohen. I've heard Al Capone. And I've heard of Bugsy Siegel. But I don't know anything about it. He said, well, if you're interested, uh, I'd love for Robbie to talk to you. But I don't want to have a conversation again. I just want it to be through Robbie. And uh, because she was I won't say elderly, but she was she was getting up there, and she wasn't really too sure. She was getting, um, for the present day, she wasn't completely uh, in touch with everything that was going on. People were coming to her uh, for, for uh, background. Uh, Warren Beatty came to her and asked if she would uh, train him and uh, the mannerisms and the psyche and the, uh, and the background of Budgie Siegel because she knew him so well. They were closest of friends. Siegel took a paternal in- interest in her, and I mean paternal. I don't mean as a code word for sexual. It was paternal because she had married his closest friend, Mo Sedway, Sedway was like uh, an older brother to Siegel. There was only uh, like a twelve-year difference, and um, and like with all of them, Siegel was born in 1906. Sedway was in 1894. Sounds like a long time, but it wasn't. Um, So it was, uh, and they all grew up together in the same neighborhood. Siegel was the only one of the of the uh, Jewish gangsters. Uh, at that time, who was born in America. The rest came from Eastern Europe. And uh, you see people like Meyer Lansky and Mo Sedway, they came from that same portion of Russia that, uh, uh, where they immigrated from. And they called him Little Mo Sedway because he was very small in size. Same thing with Meyer Lansky. It wasn't from genetics. Made them small. That made the Eastern European people small. It was the lack of food, because the offspring. Yeah, uh, the offsprings that came from them were American size. I would say, you know, there were five, ten, six feet. They, they were not the five foot three most Sedway size, and and most Sedway was. uh, uh, unusual character because he was not loud he was the antithesis the, the complete opposite of Siegel and uh, he would not uh, uh, he he didn't like to be in the limelight and yet everybody sought out his advice Lansky Siegel so many other people the people in the uh uh, uh one of the five families, it'll come to me in a second, uh, Genovese family, they sought his his uh, counsel. And that only came about because at the time, Sicilians, Italians, and the Jews did not mix, except Lansky, who was head of the Jewish mob, and Lucky Luciano, who was head of the uh, American mafia, did get together, they got together through, uh, from childhood, so, uh, and and Luciano even said, you know, when the Jews and Italians uh, combine together, we do so much better, he realized that, and instead of shunning Jewish influence, he embraced it, and It was, and none of them had a great education. You know, you talk about high school dropouts. uh, There was no such thing as high school dropouts. Uh, The average grade that they dropped out was sixth grade. And Siegel was so, so outlandish. He was like the cut up of the class. I doubt if he ever got a sixth grade education because he was always being sent to detention. He was not. He was not a student. Uh, Sedway was a student. Sed- Sedway had an unusually high IQ and just a, a moderate education. But Sedway was different than Siegel and as much as Sedway would listen. He would listen to someone that had something to say. Siegel would not. Siegel would rather hear the tone of his own voice than to hear counsel from someone else, except for Sedway. Whenever Siegel went into a deal, he always asked for Sedway's blessing for the uh, for their wire service in Las Vegas. It was Sedway and Siegel, and uh, and but I get ahead of myself there. Uh, so they they would uh, uh, do deals together, and it would when he met his when Sedway met his future wife. He was a Confirmed bachelor at the age of 41 and he met the beautiful, vivacious redhead, a fresh graduate from Elmira High School in New York uh, at 17 and um, he was 41 and she was in the chorus line at the uh, Paradise Cabaret, which was a former speakeasy and now was Vaubillion and so she would perform an, an act, a singing act and dancing on roller skates, and it was it was like a little circus. That's where Vaudeville was, um, but more personal. They had comics, they had all sorts of people. And B. Sedway was she left Elmira. She wanted to dance. She went to Broadway. Ended up at the Paradise Cabaret, and that was the first and last. Job she ever had, because Mo Sedway, who was owned part of the cabaret, uh, happened to spot her in the uh, chorus line. That it, somebody uh, saw her initially. Fellow named uh, 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 Green, and fat Irish Green, uh, saw her in the chorus line. And Sedway happened to be in Europe at the time. that's what they said, but that's another story. Uh, when he came back, uh, not- Green held her back.
1: oh, okay, I got you. He lost me there for a second. It was like, how could he spot her if he was in another country? but I saw a line
0: yes he was he was uh, she he was she was being kept back because at the end of the evening all the girls in the chorus line would have drinks with the guys in the audience. And they were, it was a place where the mob and the mafia liked to hang out. And uh, they would have drinks and, and with the girls. And they would, uh, and the girls would be promised uh, a free meal. And, sure. you know, a chorus girl diet, or a free meal. And, uh, and some drinks and a good time. And anything they wanted to do after that, that was up to them. And, uh, but Fat Irish Green sees her, uh, a, a beautiful little ingenue uh, that's kind of gotten the attention of everybody because she's so vivacious and, and uh, so dynamic. And she was diminu- diminutive in her own right. She was not a big lady. And, uh, and Green said, i got to hold her back for Sedway. I think he would like her. Sedway was a womanizer, and he knew the type of woman that he liked. So he wanted to keep this uh, American beauty fresh for Mo Sedway. So he said, do not ask her to sit with any of the guys. And uh, so she wasn't. So she just would go home, go have something to and notice these girls were always having dinner, but she was never – she was asked. And she turned it down initially. Uh, her reaction was, why, they're old enough to be my father. They're older than my father. Her father was, like, in his uh, mid-30s, uh, late 30s. And he said, they're older than my father. What am I going to have a drink with them for? And um, and the estate manager kept pressing her and said, look, if you don't have a drink with them, uh, you might as well find another job. And then that Irish Green Stepped in and said, "Leave her alone. I'm going to keep her for Sedway. And see see what he wants to do." Well, Sedway comes from his uh, his trip to Europe, and and uh, he spots her uh, B while she was on stage, and uh, the stage manager said, "That's the girl that uh, Green was holding back for you. Uh, what do you think?" Well, Sedway was. Thunderstruck. He was nailed to, his shoes were nailed to the floor. He couldn't believe she. It was like a cartoon where your heart goes boiling out of your chest <laughs> and eyes pop out. <sighs> and then uh, she walks off stage and they start talking, but he doesn't talk like a gangster. He speaks very nicely, quietly, asked her if she liked to go out to dinner, and they did. They went out to dinner and uh, she starts spending time with them. And they go to the most fabulous club in New York at the time, the hottest club in the New York, called the Store Club. And the Store Club was a former uh, bootlegger named Sherman Billingsley, who, whose concept was the Store Club. And uh, he had a love for exotic birds, so he called it the Store Club. And he used to have a floor show, and then he said, I have so many celebrities here. I'll have my guests uh, at the hotel become the entertainment. And there was a a, uh, a major radio newsman named Walter Winchell who started coming in. He was a, a friend of Billingsley. And he started doing his broadcasts from the store club. He would write. He, they had a, a room on the second floor called the Cub Room, and Winchell would write his report there, come down and interview different um, different guests. So he would do his radio show from the store club. Then he'd come down, interview guests on a separate show uh, from the store club. And that went on for several years. People, there were a line outside of the restaurant, and people were just waiting to come in to be with the in-crowd. So he would do his, his radio show from the store club. And of course, later TV came in, they started doing TV from the store club. And most Sedway wanted to show be a good time. So he walks into the store club and, uh, and they see him, and they say, oh, Mr. Sedway, right this way. They sent him to a special table and said, would you like to be interviewed by Walter Winchell for the radio show? He said, no, I don't want to be interviewed. Set me in another table away from that because I don't want to be interviewed. I just want to have dinner with uh, my girlfriend, and I just want her to see the store club. Well, Sherman Billingsley walks over to him and sits down, and they start schmoozing, and, uh, and B was wide-eyed. Everybody had heard of the store club, and here Mo is talking to the owner of the store club And say, no, I don't want to be interviewed. I'm glad to talk to you, but I don't want to be interviewed. I just wanted the show be a good time. So they they did. And uh, so she was impressed. She saw things she would never see in Elmira, New York, and she would never see with the showgirls or never see with these mobsters. She was seeing uh, New York and her limited experience uh, only – uh, bolstered her her quest for more experience, she wanted to see everything. She wanted to experience everything, and uh, and so Mo went to uh, the paradise and told the state ma- stage manager, "Bee's not going to be in for a couple of weeks, but I want you to continue paying her salary." And uh, he gives the stage manager a chunk of money. He says. There's money enough there for her salary, and there's something for you, too. But I don't want you to say anything about it. Just just if somebody asks, one of the girls asks, oh, she's she's busy doing something else. So she spent a couple of weeks with Mo. He was living uh, at the Waldorf Astoria, like Ben Siegel, like Meyer Lansky, like Walter Winchell. They, the, the Waldorf Astoria was the place to be. And, um, and if you had the money, that's where you went. And so they were all living there. It was uh, a strange combination of neighbors because you had the mob, you had the newspaper, you had captains of industry. Everybody who was anybody lived at the Waldorf Astoria. So Mo lived there, and B just loved it. Of course, uh, she had this little tiny apartment, which she also loved because it got her away from her, her house living with her dad, and um, she just enjoyed it. So Mo wanted to uh, introduce her to his business family. The only other family he had was his mother, and uh, she was old world. And so she met his mother, but she met her at their wedding. Uh, She wanted to introduce him to uh, Ben Siegel and to Meyer Lansky. So uh, Ben Siegel went to uh, an office because they didn't want to take her to their office because that was a private affair. So they went to a neutral office, an office of a friend of theirs, and uh, that's where they met. And Ben and B hit it off beautifully. Ben had two small daughters, and um, he was very paternal to Be, and wanted to show her things that later in life wanted to show her how to conduct herself. When you, she, he said, when you walk into a room, stand straight up. Uh, don't just walk right in. Stand, survey the place. Walk in. People will treat you how you present yourself. If you walk in all hunched over, they'll treat you that way too. So always walk in tall with your head held high and look at the place. Just don't bolt right in. Look around before you walk through the door. And that's the way she conducted herself. And, uh, he, uh, and then they went to meet Meyer Lansky and it was a completely different meeting. I mean, it was a, it was a wonderful meeting, but Lansky was, was more reserved. He wasn't, he was more like Mo. Lansky was not uh, 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 loud. He wasn't garish like uh, Siegel. Uh, different personalities, but their, but their uh, personalities did not clash. And I think they didn't clash because there was no competition. Siegel was not in competition with Sedway, and Sedway certainly was not in competition with Siegel. And uh, and so they, they uh, blended very well. When uh, when Sedway did get married, and he only dated Dee for three weeks, and this confirmed bachelor said, that's it, <laughs> I'm going to marry her. And when he told Siegel that, B had not heard that before. He had never spoken of marriage. He said, "This is. I want to introduce you to B. This is the girl I'm going to marry." B said, "What?" To herself, "You're going to, <laughs> You never even spoke of marriage. It's only been three weeks." But in those days, girls did get married at seventeen, eighteen years old, right out of high school. It was either that or become a secretary. There were no such thing as doctors, lawyers, or anything else. And, and it was until recently when you would call a, a female doctor a woman doctor instead of a doctor. So these are concepts that were decades away. And uh, so he said, "Yeah," he said, "Be if you'll have me." And um, and so she met with Meyer Lansky and his wife Anne. And um, And interestingly enough, uh, uh, Siegel did not bring his wife, but uh, Lansky brought his wife. They met at Lansky's apartment at the Waldorf, so they were all neighbors, and and they had a a nice time. And then they had the wedding, and the wedding was uh, a a glorious affair. Uh, Bugsy Siegel was the best man and his wife was the matron of honor uh, uh b had no aunts, and she had uncles, but she had no no aunts that she was close with she had no other female friends from high school that were married that could be a matron of honor and and uh Siegel's wife uh esther was very nice she was uh, very nice with B and Eva and as all the women were. I mean, it, this was Mo's wife. Doesn't matter if she's 17 years old. They showed respect to uh, Mo and they just took her under their wing. She had never had uh, real parents, parental support before. She came from a blue collar family and the family was uh, had divorced. And uh, the father took the uh, took B, and her mother Blanche went off with some other guy. But Blanche did eventually uh, become a big part of B's life later. But uh, even during the wedding, she she started becoming very quickly more attached to B because she saw B had qualities that she never. Realized in the past seeing how these other people treated her when when blanche was uh you know more or less for blanche and she was she kind of discounted b in many respects and she had a, a bellicose temper she was she was always flying off the handle where her father was more meek and mild but very uh uh, very solicitous of me, uh, wanted to uh, get her uh, dance lessons that she requested. And he thought of it more like uh, going to trade school because he knew she would eventually become a dancer and a singer and everything else she wanted to be and that Elmira in New York was not going to hold her. And, uh, and girls either got married or they, uh, they drifted off someplace else. They didn't really stay in Elmira. There wasn't a lot of opportunity at the time. Maybe there is today, but at the time there wasn't. So B was um, was game. She was a gutsy girl. And uh, so she had she had heard of Jews. And when, when they said, oh, Mo Sedway, he's a Jew, said, well, I've heard of Jews. What are Jews? Like so many people. At the time, they didn't know. They thought Jews had horns. They, they they thought it was mystical. It was exotic. But she thought, you know, they're very nice. We're having a good time. She wasn't sure who was Jewish and who was not because she met Lucky Luciano at the time. She met uh, all all of Mo's friends, and they were all very close to her. And uh, and when uh, Blanche came over to be. Der- while they were preparing for the wedding, she stayed with uh, B in her apartment to help her get ready for the wedding. There was no she did some planning, uh, but there was someone else who actually planned the party. B had no idea how to put a wedding party together, so there was somebody that uh, that Mo had gotten to uh, to help her put it together, and she did it with her taste without the Elmira influence. It was more of a uptown Manhattan taste. And she was very good. Uh, she had a great time. Uh, during the, that particular time, she took her mother to Saks Fifth Avenue, got her a new dress, because the mob wives had taken B to Saks Fifth Avenue. She knew nothing of Saks Fifth Avenue. And during that time, B gets kidnapped. Say what? She she gets kidnapped uh, by a fellow named Pretty Amberg. Pretty Amberg, who had a beef with Sedway with the uh, with people from the Lansky mob. She ca- she kidnapped Blanche, thinking it was B. Well, when he found out his mistake, he he let her go immediately. But Sedway was irate. He was uncontrollably rate, he was affronted. The fact that someone had a beef with him and would kidnap his soon-to-be mother-in-law, thinking it was his soon-to-be wife, was an incredulous notion. And Sedway was not a killer, but he had been around killers all his life, and he never he never wanted to uh, do a killing himself but he wasn't giving a value judgment to anyone else because it was part of the business. And I guess it's sort of like working in a slaughterhouse. It's once you kill your first cow or you kill your first chicken, you know, for the meatpacking plant, after that it becomes rote. It's, you don't even think about it. Well, Sideway was irate. And at the time, Murder Incorporated had begun. They started in 1929 and went to uh, uh, only for 12 years, and uh, to 1942 or 1941. They went for 12 years. So Murder Incorporated was in full bloom at the time. So he asked uh, a couple of the higher-ups in Murder Incorporated, I want you to get pretty ambered. Um, He asked a fellow named Louis Lepsky, who was president of Murder Incorporated, he asked a fellow named Ed—I uh, mean, excuse me—Abraham Kid Twist Relis, who was one of the higher up killers of Murder Incorporated. And he said, "I want you to get um, Ambert and I want you to kill him, but I want you to torture him first. I want to send out a message: never throw around with a uh, with somebody's family." And Siegel hears that, and he said, "Look, Mo." As a wedding gift to you personally, I want to go in there too, because I want to get this son of a gun, and um, and I want to get at him as well. So, as wedding gift to Mo, Siegel was the third party in this killing, and they got uh, and they they got uh, they got uh, pretty ambushed. They tortured him for two days cut him up, and when he was found, he was found in a burning car trussed up with barbed wire still alive. And then they, but when they found him, he was dead. They found him under the Williamsburg Bridge and a car still smoking trussed up with barbed wire. It was gruesome. But Sedway sent the message out. Now, Williamsburg Bridge is an interesting place. Uh, why? Because Siegel was born in Williamsburg. So he went to his hometown to do the killing. He didn't care. He, that's what he did. And, uh, and so it sent, sent the message out. And if you Google this, you won't find anything about it. They'll say the killers are unknown. They never found out who did it. But now you and know. I, I do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, Stuart, this is information yeah. Yeah. that was given to you by B. Sedway's son, your your friend, you know, your childhood friend. So this is <laughs> well, not yeah. just, well, yeah. you know, third and fourth hearsay. You and I have talked about this. This is, you know, barely hearsay because you're getting it directly from the family. And that takes me back because you had talked earlier about, you know how the families were when they were when y'all were kids and y'all went to school at the same time? You told me a story not too long ago about a pallbearer. There was a, a, oh, a yes. funeral, and you were surprised to see who all the pallbearers were. They were all friends. Can you share that with us?
0: Yes. Uh, this was, I thought, fascinating because I never thought about it. Then I started doing research, and I saw an article that, Came out in Los Angeles Magazine in 2014, uh, an article that Robbie had uh, given an interview for, and among the Paul Birds, they mentioned uh, Frankie Lane and Danny Thomas and the Marx Brothers, and we went to school with Zeppo Marx's sons, uh, Tom and Tim. Uh, Groucho's daughter went to Hawthorne Her name was Melinda uh, We went to school with Frankie Lane's daughter She was in our class, Jan And uh, and I remember being at Jan's house for a party And her father was there And he never mentioned Oh, I was appalled for it's your father's funeral Never mentioned I didn't know any of this until later until I started doing research so a lot of these people like Danny Thomas he lived on um, the streets in Beverly Hills called Elvado and Elm at the time which is between my house and Redford. uh I mean Hawthorne School which is on Rexford, and I lived on Hart at the time and so I used to walk home from school and I'd see Danny Thomas's daughter Terry uh, that was Marlo's younger sister, uh, playing in the front yard, and we would talk, and she knew all the people from Hawthorne, but she went to a, a parochial school. Uh, in those days, people went to private schools for strictly for religious reasons, not for any other reasons, because the education was superb, especially in Beverly Hills. It was superb, and um, it was, uh, so I knew them, and I, and as far as the Marx Brothers and Frankie Lane and and uh, Danny Thomas. So I thought, isn't that interesting? We knew their kids, and nobody ever mentioned. Oh, my dad knows your dad from Las Vegas, and nobody, because everybody's story in Beverly Hills at Hawthorne School in my class, everyone's story was a special story. Everyone's story, home life was over the top and it everything is sensational nothing is sensational. There was no all we did was talk about kid stuff. We never talked about someone else's parents. oh so uh, you know we would go to the movies and, uh, and we'd see somebody's mother on screen or someone's father on screen. Sometimes we'd see someone's mother and father on screen, different uh, friends and they would have a romantic interlude on the screen. Kissing or something. Nobody said, Oh, look what. No, it was, it was, Beverly Hills was a company town. That's all it was. You'd see uh, familiar names on the, uh, on the credits. And you say, Oh, that's so and so's dad who's the, the uh, sound technician or the director or the producer or the actor or the actress. And so we knew a lot of the people. Or, uh, oh, my dad's friend is an attorney for so-and-so. And uh, uh, like my dad's attorney was, uh, was uh, the attorney for George Raft. Uh, but everybody knew everybody in those days. It was, and it was confounding to me on the social structure of houses, how families, how kids can have a different name from their mother and their father. I never understood that. Uh, I had several friends like that where they, their last name was different from their mother's last name, their father's last name, and their two names were different from each other. How does that work? I found out <laughs> it does work. But um, there were a lot of things that mystified me when I went from Jacksonville to Beverly Hills. It was quite a <laughs> Yeah. So,
1: So my point for, for bringing all this up is that, yeah. you know, you're basically, I mean, you, you say, you've told me anyway, that all of the books that you're aware of and that you have read about, you know, the killing of Bugsy Siegel are several steps away from where you are. I mean, they're largely hearsay. Some of them are, are just flat out made up. But you were in it. You were living among those people. You knew them from mm-hmm. childhood. So even though nothing, because it came from B. Sedway and her son, it's still hearsay. It's, it can't be directly proven, but your one that's degree right. goes to two, three, and four. So that's the point I was trying to make.
0: That's true. Uh, it is hearsay only because B. Sedway didn't say it to for example to you direct she's saying it through me so but she said it direct to me so it wasn't hearsay when she told me right. but, uh, i just found it was fascinating because there's so many books out on Budgie siegel so many books out on marlansky on lucky luciano on frank costello on all of the all of the different personalities that uh Everything I have seen on Siegel was was just what you could read in the newspaper. He was shot through the window. Was showed, for example, in in the film Budsy, and and B. Sedway had a major hand with uh, Warren Beatty on giving him inside tips, as well as the writer and producer. Um, but what was shown was he was shot through the window uh, in his in his living room, and that was it. They don't say, for example, there was someone else in the living room, uh, Alan Smiley. They don't say that uh, Virginia Hill's uh, brother and his girlfriend were on the second floor after being out all day and part of the night with Siegel. They don't say that the housekeeper was in her room. There were five people in that house. It was loaded. They only show Siegel sitting by himself being shot through a window. And that part is true. He was shot through the window. But how it happened, I think it's fascinating because a lot is being taken for granted. Sure, he was shot through a window, but people don't don't just say, oh, there's uh, – there's a chance to shoot Siegel. I'm going to stand uh, against this window and shoot. How do they know no. he's going to be there in that window? How's, 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 you know, how do they know he's they going know to be sitting on that sofa?
1: Well, and how's here's my question. Yeah. Not knowing anything further, I'm, I didn't realize there were people in the house, but I would think that given who the people were, you know, Siegel, Meyer All of them, that they would have, and you mentioned Moose being the guard, bodyguard. Why wasn't he being guarded? Did he have bodyguards? Was you know what was going on? Was he just available to be shot?
0: No, no, that great question, absolute great question, Ace. Because his bodyguard was Pat Irish Green, and Pat Irish Green was in Las Vegas with him and generally would go to uh, uh, to Beverly Hills and be with him. But Siegel just wanted to slip out. He didn't want a bodyguard. He had some meetings to go to, and he felt pretty safe. And he just wanted to go there and come back. He was going for the weekend. And and that was it, in and out. He didn't want Siegel. And the, the fact that he stayed at Virginia Hills' house when his own palatial estate was a mile away or less.
1: Right, you told me incredible. that. It's incredible.
0: Yeah, he could have very well stayed at his own house because Virginia Hill was in uh, Europe at the time. She wasn't even home. But he he was such a creature of habit that they knew, whoever planned it out, and I'll get into that at another time, uh, knew that he would, felt, For sure, he would be at Virginia Hill's house instead of his own. Now, he hadn't been to his own house in several months. He was busy in Las Vegas. But like Virginia Hill, he had a housekeeper living on the premises, so he could come in with 15 minutes' notice, and the sheets would be fresh. There'd be something on the stove if he wanted something to eat. Anytime, day or night, the, the housekeeper was there, the house was always clean there was never dust they changed the sheets once a week whether he was there or not it was always fresh he could have gone to his own house and said what am I going to Virginia's house nobody's there but they did not, they did not show that Alan Smiley was there he was sitting on the same sofa as Siegel the same sofa shared the same newspaper and uh, and the shooter was so good that he shot around Smiley the, uh, the sleeve of his jacket with a bullet, but he did not want to kill Smiley, so he shot around him. That's why Siegel had such a, a strange way of being shot. He was shot in the side of the head, caused such pressure when he was shot in the side of the head that it caused his left eye to pop out of his head and roll down the carpet. And he was shot twice in the head, all from the side, never straight on. So it was to the side. It was very fancy shooting for a fellow using an M1 carbine, army issued rifle. And uh, that's that's the way it was.
1: Sounds yeah. like a sniper.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've been watching Indiana well, too much. Go on and on. <laughs> I bet. Okay. Well, and I have to ask you. So Bugsy was in the wrong house where was his wife were they still married had they divorced i mean she doesn't appear well, to be a, around
0: she they had divorced a year before okay she was back in new york they he had built a he had bought a, a tudor house in scarsdale which by the way was a wasp area and they did not welcome jews but believe it or not when bugsy moved in I came to Welcome Wagon with cookies and casseroles.
1: You don't want to make him mad. I wouldn't.
0: That's right. He wouldn't well, care.
1: He said just uh, where yeah. he was going to go. I know. And, you know, I've got, I've got the um, most of your book, and I've been reading it, and it's fascinating. And I know it's going One. to be published soon at some point, but it, it's just what I find the most interesting and the most intriguing about your story and where you are with this, is that you were there. You grew up with these people. You kept in touch with them, one way or another. You know, for the duration of of their lives. I think most of them are now gone. Um, you've got stories, and they're not maloney stories. You have looked at this. You have researched it. I mean, you make sure that. You can prove everything that you've got to say in this book.
0: I'll tell you something interesting. Um, When I was in the seventh or eighth grade, and I must warn you, I have a photographic memory, so I do remember things. I remember Robbie's phone number at his house when we were kids. Mm -hmm. I remember everything. And I do remember going to the house that Siegel was killed at for a party. I was in the seventh grade. And we went there and and it was a different school district, different kids. Uh, my cousin was going to uh, a school called Rodeo, and uh, invited me to a party, so I went there and it was in uh, eight ten north London. It was the rental house that uh, that uh, Virginia Hill had, but it was it was after Virginia Hill, so this had to be like 1956, maybe 57, and we went in there, and I remember someone saying, this is the house where Bugsy Siegel was killed, and showed me the the, the living room, and, and I remember thinking, who's Bugsy Siegel? Nobody knew who Bugsy Siegel was, but since he was killed in that house, these kids were just imitating what their parents said. Right. Who was Bugsy Siegel? I have no idea. But uh, that house has remained the same since then. It's, uh, it's like a Moor's castle. And uh, it was and everything in the neighbor's house. He was shot from the neighbor's property. And I've been there, and nothing has changed. And I've been physically there. And I saw how everything was set up, and I know how the shooting went. And what I received from B. Sedway and from Robbie Sedway were the facts of their what they knew. Everything I did in the book, I had to research. I mean, B. doesn't know the intricacies of Lucky Luciano or Frank Costello. She knew right. them as social friends.
1: Yeah, they were people. Husband. They weren't you know, they were. his, historical figures. They were people to her.
0: Yes. So I did the research on that because I just wanted – initially, I just wanted to go with the killing of Siegel. And then I said, well, I've got to expand it some. So I said, I'll just go from when the Sedways got involved. And then I realized that most Sedway was involved from the very beginning,
1: beginning. Of
0: right of organized crime. He, it just, uh, so I start this around 1919 just before the Depression, just before uh, Prohibition started it in 1919 and uh, started it with with a fellow named uh, Arnold Rothstein, Arnold the Brain Rothstein, uh, who a lot of people may have never heard of before, but who was completely significant in this whole era. And, uh, he came from a uh, Orthodox Jewish family, and he came from a privileged class. He loved to gamble. He loved to make money in any way he could. His father was completely disappointed with him, but it uh, didn't matter to him. And he met Meyer Lansky at a uh, bar mitzvah, a bar mitzvah of a friend's son and they had never met before, and the two started talking, and and, Lans- and um, Lansky had the crew, and Rothstein had the brains and the money, and he showed Lansky how crime could be run and if it was organized, if it was organized in a business fashion, and he showed him, that a crime doesn't have to be a degree of opportunity. It can be uh, a a degree of strategy. So an opportunity, meaning someone's walking down the street and they happen to have their purse open, so you grab in the purse. That's a crime of opportunity. A crime of strategy is completely different. And it's done on a business platform, on a business profile. And that's how he set it up, and that's the way it is today.
1: And Meyer to our Lansky, oh, and that's in the book, Meyer Lansky, for those of you who may not know this, was an accountant. He had that kind of brain.
0: Well, he he wasn't an accountant per se. They called him the mob accountant. The, the mob, the mob accountant, accountant,
1: right. I'm sorry. I'm glad yeah, you corrected me. Yeah, but
0: he me, wasn't but an
1: accountant. accountant. He well, was the business uh, brain behind he, it all. My.
0: Exactly, Exactly. and and Sedway. That's okay. Uh, And Sedway, uh, since Lansky was the mob's was the mob accountant, Sedway was the mob auditor,
1: Mm. because
0: Lansky would go to Sedway, and any time he did a deal, he would go to Sedway, for Sedway to give it his blessing, because Sedway was a very thoughtful introspective person and um, he was never loud so he never competed with any of them he was on his own level which was much higher than most of them but he never showed it because he wasn't he wasn't outlandish he wasn't verbose he didn't dress loud he didn't like to give interviews he just got things done and he traveled all over the country everybody knew him
1: Stuart, we are out of time. We actually stopped streaming. We're still recording. I love chatting with you because I love history. You've got amazing information about this entire you know, event stream of events. Or I don't even know how to say it properly. I mean, you know things the that genre. other people simply don't. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Who just yeah. don't know. So I can't wait for the book to come out. But listen, thank you so much for joining me again and it's been wonderful speaking with you and I thank you for that peek into American history. But before I let you go, Stuart, please remind um, our audience where they can find information about the book and, and more information about you.
0: Well, I just happen to have a website called QueenBeeAndBugsy.com. Queen and Bugsy A-N-D, dot It's Queen B E E and Bugsy A N D com. and uh, gives you information on the on the people involved, on me, and uh, we keep it up to date on the status of when this uh, story is going
1: to be published. Perfect. Well, listen, everybody, thank you, thank you, Stuart. I really appreciate it. And before we say goodbye. I'd like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us in iTunes and anywhere else you consume your favorite podcasts. Just look for your partner in Success Radio and take us along on your success journey. Stuart, thank you again. Thank you, Denise. Get your voice
0: heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab.